We are uh, back in our Impact World series, and we are uh, moving forward in Acts chapter 7. We've gone through the first five chapters where we see the, uh, the church in its infancy really just hitting on all cylinders. Everything seems to be amazing. Everybody's doing really, really, really well, and uh, not very many exceptions to that. We stopped for a little while to look at the Holy Spirit's role in the church. And then, of course, we celebrated our resurrected Lord. And now we return to chapter 6 of the book of Acts. We'll read the first seven verses for our text today. Luke writes, In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. And we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we read this story in the book of Acts. And we see these problems come up, the conflicts arise. We realize in our own lives we have conflicts. We have things that, that seem to go wrong and we have choices to make. Father, as we work through this text today, I pray that you would help us to see what went right in the midst of things going wrong and how these obstacles became opportunities for your early church, that we might have the same occurrence in our own lives. But Father, as we pray, we recognize that the evil one seeks to distract and deceive and discourage us. He's a liar and the father of lies. So even now, even in this moment, as we are gathered virtually to focus our attention on you, there are things going on around us. Lord, I I know for myself how easy it is if I'm watching a sermon in the living room or listening in the car to give part of my attention to you, to relax, to sit back and treat it like just any other moment, any other morning. Convict us right now, Father, even as we are are going through this text, 
for those of us who are in the room, for those who us, of us who are joining online, bring about in us a spirit of reverence that we would recognize that we are engaging with the Creator of all things and the King of the universe. Protect those who hear from human opinion. Speak beyond the speaker. Let us hear and see and take to heart only that which your Spirit speaks to us. And Father, Father, protect us from ourselves, from letting our own will, our own interpretation, our own spin get in the way. Protect us from the temptation of looking at someone else and thinking, oh yeah, they need to hear this. Convict us deeply. Father, above all things, we pray that our time together would make you smile and that you would receive all glory and honor and praise through it. We pray this in the name of your risen Son. Amen. Well, it's not really surprising to anybody that we live in somewhat divisive times. And as we're all united, in a sense, in our battle against COVID-19 and you can't turn on a news channel or a radio station or anything without hearing about it, there is still a division. We're getting to a place now where every time you turn on the TV, someone is looking to place blame. Depending on what your source is, they may be saying it's all the fault of the Chinese, or it's all the fault of the president, or the governor is overreaching, or, or, or there's this constant seeking to find some place to, to lay the blame. I, I hear a lot of calls for unity and peace, but even in these calls for unity, we still see a disingenuous hypocrisy. Both Democrats and Republicans like to say, oh, they need to stop playing politics. This is too big a thing. We should all come together. And if the Republicans would just stop playing politics, or if the Democrats would just stop playing politics, then we'd all be fine. And what we see is the divisiveness continue as the problems pull us apart when we should be pulling together. As big a deal as a global pandemic is, it's small potatoes compared to the church of Christ, to the gospel of God's grace given to us in Jesus Christ, who came and died in our place while we were criminals, while we were still sinners, not even seeking God, not even looking to clean up our act, not trying to be better, just trying to find a way for life to work out better for us. We were in the process of still trying to create a God in our own image, and Christ died for us. That's big. Eternity with God or apart from God is infinitely more important than whether we have physical health and well-being in this temporary life. That doesn't mean in any way that we should neglect the things of this life, 
but we do need some perspective. And what we see in Acts chapter 6 is a church with some perspective. Back in the first seven chapters, as we just, or first seven verses, as we just read, we see some things happening and problems arise. For the first time, we see a widespread difficulty. Uh, we had seen previously, <clears throat> excuse me, in uh, chapters three and four, we saw uh, persecution begin. But the church didn't really see this as a, uh, as a problem. It wasn't an obstacle. <clears throat> Rather, it was a motivator. They were, uh, they were actually rejoicing and singing prayers, singing praises to God. At the end of chapter 4, all the believers are together and they're sharing all their possessions because they're so excited about the work and resurrection of Jesus that nothing else matters. Then in chapter 5, we have the lone instance of sin creeping in. Now, rest assured, that's not the only time there was sin, but this is the only recorded time. And Ananias and Sapphira decide they're going to make a play for some credibility in the church. They want to look as if they are giving everything when they're really only giving something. They didn't have to give any of it, but they did, and they sought to deceive the church and the Holy Spirit by taking credit for that which was not pure and true. That's the only flaw. But in chapter 6, things begin to change. Having seen the unity of the church, all of the good news has just been piling up. We've seen over and over again, from from the very moment in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes, Peter then decides that, that this is the time for him to speak up. Having previously denied Christ, he now is speaking up in on behalf of Christ, on behalf of the church, when the people in the streets are mocking the, the uh, newly anointed believers who have received the Holy Spirit and are now speaking in languages they didn't even understand themselves. And the people are like, well, yeah, they're, they're clearly drunk. Yeah, because drunkenness always makes you more educated. That's always a clear thing. But as you're seeing this happen, Peter then lays out this Brilliant, concise, simple sermon. It's not brilliant because of its eloquence. It's brilliant because of its simplicity, its clarity, its focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The people are cut to the heart. They say, what do we have to do to be saved? Peter says, repent. Identify with Christ in His church. And... 3,000 people were added. And more are added. By this time, the church is over 5,000 believers. Which is why it says in verse 1 of chapter 6, in those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, there was an increase that was happening, a steady, regular growth of the church. More and more people were being added to their number. They were believing the message. They were repenting of their sins. They were turning their lives over to God, saying, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know my sin separates me from a holy God. And I receive the gift of Jesus Christ, who died as a sacrifice to atone for my sins. And I believe that God raised Him from the dead. And they're being added to the church. So as they're being added to the church, 
<clears throat> that growth creates an issue. The Hellenistic Jews, or the Grecian Jews, depending on your rendering in your Bible, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So as we see this happening, the, the Christians were no longer being cared for by the synagogue. They were seen as a, a, an apostate sect. And while it was the responsibility of the priests in, and through the priests, through the synagogue, this was the means of it, as they would take care of the poor, now they were being put out of the synagogue because of their faith. So the church picked up the responsibility and said, look, this, this is our family. The church takes care of its own. We are brothers. We are sisters. So we will walk together. We will stand together. We will care for one another's needs. This is what we saw in chapter 2. It's what we saw in chapter 4. There, was, there were no needy people among them because they didn't really hold on to their stuff. It doesn't matter if it's mine or yours or ours. It, it's all for the sake of Christ who gave everything for me, therefore I will give everything for you. But those who were of the Hellenistic Jews, in other words, they weren't born uh, in, in Jerusalem or in necessarily in Israel. They were primarily among the diaspora, the scattered tribes in other places who had come now and, and didn't really hold to the same uh, tight Jewish traditions, but had more Greek influence. They were Jews by faith, and yet their cultural influence was much more uh, aligned with, with the Greek and Hellenistic culture. They were seen differently by those who grew up in a Jewish home with a Jewish background and held to Hebrew culture. So it would be natural for there to be a division between these people. Not racism, we like to cry racism all the time today, but there, there may very likely have been a natural bigotry between them. You're not one of us. You're not like us. Therefore, you must somehow be less than us. And so they saw this division between them, but now they're united in Christ, having previously been united, so-called, by their Judaism, with the division remaining, now they were united by Christ. They had all received the same Holy Spirit, and they were one in that Spirit. But now as the church grows, there's an issue that comes up. All of a sudden, with the apostles in charge of everything at this point, they're, they're the whole leadership, the, the twelve apostles handled all of the the governing, so, so to speak, of this burgeoning church. And as they did this, as they did the work that was to be done, it started to become too much. Bear in mind, you're well over 5,000 people. you got 12 people leading the whole show, trying to distribute the food appropriately between these widows and the Jews, and the, the Grecian or Hellenistic uh, Jews are starting to feel like, wait a minute, we're being overlooked. Things aren't going right. Who knows why? It doesn't matter why. The realistic nature of the complaint is that whether or not 
it was a valid complaint, it felt like a valid complaint to them. Perhaps they were really being overlooked. Perhaps they were not. But in any case, conflict came up between them because of this perceived slight. This is the whole context of what's going on. And in the midst of this conflict, the twelve have to make a decision. How are we going to handle this? What are we going to do now? Fast forward to the end in verse 7. And the way they handled it, the decisions they made, where they went with this, led to the following result. So the word of God spread. Notice that word so. It's like a therefore. Because of all the stuff that we just talked about, because of all the things in verses 1 through 6, because of, so the word of God spread. He goes on to say, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly after this. Because of this, it increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, how did they handle it? They handled it, as we'll see as we walk through this, just to to kind of catch us up briefly. They handled it by saying, look, we have to stay focused on our job. Our primary job is that we have to be the ministers of the Word. We have to minister through prayer and the Word. And all this other good stuff, this is, this is great, this is important, but we can't let this keep us from doing our job. And they invite the people, it says all the people, I don't know that they had all 5,000 plus people or if it was the, the large number of people that were there. In any case, they invited the mass of the, of the disciples of the body to come together And to choose for themselves, the apostles weren't choosing them, the people were choosing them, men that were known to them, and known specifically to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. That's a pretty important deal. The people were excited by this. So, okay, so we're being overlooked. The apostles are giving us a chance to have a voice. Even here in the New Testament, people cry out for a voice in their own government, don't they? It's a natural cry of the heart. So they're excited because they get to make a choice. They they choose these seven men. Notice the, the ones that are chosen. Stephen, and as the first on the list, they... They cite him as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't necessarily mean that that he's more of this than the rest of these guys, but he's the first one they talk about. Maybe he is more, but that's not the point of mentioning it. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip. We're going to see both of them specifically coming up in stories in, in coming weeks. You may be familiar with them already. Prochorus, Nicanor, you may not be as familiar with either of them. Timon, Parmenas, maybe not quite so familiar. Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Now, I recognize the name Nicholas, probably not from this guy, but it's a name that's not unfamiliar to us. But notice, he's from Antioch. 
He's not from Jerusalem. And he's a convert to Judaism. He's a proselyte. In other words, he was not born Jewish. He is a Gentile. So right here at the beginning of this growing church, before the Gentiles have been welcomed in, one of the seven who has gained respect among the people and is chosen for this position of leadership and authority in the distribution of food, he was born a Gentile. He had already renounced pagan gods and Gentile ways and become, for all intents and purposes, a Jew. Like, a, like, like a, uh, an immigrant can become a naturalized citizen in the U.S., this is much deeper. This is a full conversion saying, I am dead to everything that I was. I'm dead to my past. I'm dead to my foreign culture. I'm dead to all that was Gentile, and now I find myself in the living God. And now this man who had converted to Judaism has seen the fulfillment, the completion of Judaism in Messiah, in Jesus Christ. Interesting. We overlook little things like this so often. I hate to to not recognize that right out of the gate, before Gentiles were welcomed, Here's a Gentile who had already been welcomed. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. In verse 6, we see that as these men were brought forward, there was a ceremony of sorts, and the twelve prayed, and that they placed their hands on them in a, in a sort of uh, appointment or ceremony or an ordination. And in the way this was handled, the crisis was averted, Wisdom and love were brought to bear, and the Word of God spread because of it. This brings me to our core reality for today. As we work through this text, this is the the single governing thought. Addressing conflict with wisdom and love reflects Christ to the watching world. Now there's a lot more that I wanted to to wrap up into this, but when I boiled it down to its essence, this is what came out of that that, uh, particular furnace. Addressing conflict with wisdom and love reflects Christ to the watching world. As they handled this conflict, the conflict, they they couldn't change the fact that it was there, right? There there were complaints. Now we got complaints. What are we going to do with it? People did not come to Christ because there was no conflict. But people were more and more attracted. It amplified the message. It magnified it. It was like coming through a loudspeaker now. All of the the preaching that they had done about Christ, all the talk about love, the way they handled the conflict demonstrated it. And as they showed this, more and more people were coming to Christ. The number of disciples was increasing rapidly. And there's this interesting point at the end. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, when we think of priests, very often we think of Roman Catholicism or you know, Episcopal Anglican Church or uh, some Christian form of priest. We're talking about Jewish priests here. Those who were part of the Jewish religious establishment. 
It's easy for us as we read the Gospels to just lump all of them together and everybody who's part of the religious leadership is bad. And that's not the picture we have. While as a group they opposed Christianity, we see here that from this early day, we're only in chapter 6, things haven't even busted loose yet, and we have a large number of priests, those who ministered before the Lord on behalf of the people, those who worked at the temple, and they're converted now to Christ. Why? They weren't converted by the message, at least not alone. But as they handled this conflict, they reflected Christ, the full reality of Christ, to a watching world. As we work through this text, there are some observations that uh, catch my attention. Hopefully they will catch yours as well. Six observa- or, uh, there are five observations in Acts 6 that turn an obstacle here into an opportunity. What could have been the downfall of the church instead becomes its great testimony. First we see this, changes bring challenges. Changes bring challenges. That's what's happening. Change is inevitable. This is a reality. As they're growing, as the church is increasing, this change is inevitable. And it inevitably brings with it certain problems or challenges. The conflict that we see here in this passage didn't arise from sinful attitudes or practices. Now we saw that in chapter 5 with with, uh, um, Ananias and Sapphira. There was a sin that was involved. That's not what's happening here. The conflict here doesn't come from sinful attitudes or practices, but from natural human limitations. There's a job that is too big for the twelve to handle appropriately. As it grows, the problems arise. The church was vibrant. It was growing. Growth is itself change. So the problems arose from things going right. We often, when we see problems, we see conflicts, we assume that there is a bad thing happening. Very often, good things lead to conflict and problems, right? We just come into a windfall of a million dollars. Now we got problems. More money, more problems. We got to figure out what are we going to do with all this money. And my wife and I might disagree about where this money should go. What do we do with it? It's conflict. It doesn't have to be bad. It's just that God gave us all individual brains. We don't all just plug into one big giant mainframe computer and think all the same thoughts. God intentionally gave you a cranium with a mass inside that does your thinking. And it's not exactly the same as the person next to you. So no matter how close you are, if you have two different people with two different brains, at some point you're going to have conflict. Again, the problems here in this passage, they arose from things going right. The church simply outgrew its structure. To borrow from Jesus, the new wine was active and expanding, and it was splitting the old wineskins. The inevitable conflict actually, rather than creating a problem, led to a new structure that they never would have otherwise considered. And that new structure took them to new heights. So, 
the word of God spread. If this hadn't happened, if the changes hadn't presented these challenges, and we hadn't seen the old wineskins splitting so that they came up with a new structure, we would not see, verse 7, that the number is increasing rapidly, and a large number of priests are becoming obedient to the faith. It happens because of the conflict, because changes bring challenges. And as they handled this in a godly way, addressing conflict with wisdom and love, they reflected Christ to a watching world. And the obstacle became an opportunity. 